Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Oh, Afwa Hirsch is coming. Lovely Afwa. Have and you she's... met Afwa? Yeah, loads of times. See, I've not actually ever met her. You and Afwa have never met? No. I didn't realise that. Oh, she's fantastic. She's a brilliant, brilliant woman and lovely and funny and interesting. And she's bringing her sister with her. And I don't know mm. if it's her little sister or her big sister, Amma. Mm. Um, so I'm really interested and excited to meet her sister. I feel like we're all, me, mum and Af, we're very much, like have similar intentions of the kind of TV we're trying to make. Yeah. The kind of voices that we want in more mainstream places. I don't um, know, we just watched a bit of the um, brilliant BBC um, series that she did, Africa Rising. I hadn't actually seen it. I wanted to, but I Fantastic. We just watched it. It was made so beautifully, and I want, really want to talk to her about the experience of making that, mirroring our experience making our show for the BBC in the Caribbean. But I felt really proud watching her on that. She did a really beautiful job. Oh, she looks amazing. And she looks banging. Oh my god. The, look, the, the whole show actually is stunningly beautiful. I don't know who shot it. I don't know who directed it. But seriously, we need to bleep, like seriously. Yeah. It's absolutely stunning. For people who don't know Afua, how do we describe her? How would you describe? Afua is a writer. Interestingly, I was going to ask her how she describes herself when it comes to the things she does. Because I don't know whether the broadcaster would be anywhere near the top. No, she's a social commentator. Yes. And she's a writer and a a thinker. A thinker. A a thought person. She's a thought person. (laughs) She's a thought person. I love a thought person. She's got, like, you know, she's got thoughts. She's got thoughts and she's a person. Barking like a crazy dog. It's Afwa Hush, okay? She's quite an elegant lady. So if you, you could just, just shut up, down. Scout, for once in your life. Yeah. But Afwa likes dogs, we've um, discovered. Yes, we we've established. Afwa and Amma. I know. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. Yeah, going in. Come into our home. Oh, so good to have you here. Oh, we're so thrilled. 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 Oh
Welcome to the table. Welcome to our home. Thank you so much for coming. I'm very thrilled that you're here. So I'll show you what we have on the plate. Turnip puree that's made with oat milk, actually, just to stop it being too heavy. But it really brings out the... Turnips are really funny because they're bitter. People tend to avoid them. There's like a kind of funny thing about, you know, awful boiled turnips. If you, you can cream English, them. bad English yeah, race. Yeah, bad school moments in your life. But you make a turnip puree, it's a thing of beauty. So we've made a tur- creamy turnip puree, leek tops sautéed with green seasoning, which is like garlic and chilies, like, mm. and lots of herbs and, and uh, spring onions. And spinach, so that's just sautéed off. Then we've got a lamb fillet that's got pilbeber, which is like a Turkish chilli, and just salt and pepper, and we seared that off in the pan with loads and loads of butter and oregano and thyme yeah. and garlic. It was a great moment. And yeah, then we made a, I made a lamb broth last night, so we finished it with oh, a lamb wow. broth and green seasoning it and just let it rest. And then we've got so crispy good. leeks on the top and some parsley, crispy fried parsley and a little bit of chive and um, parsley oil. Are these like wheat berries or oh, giant couscous? Oh, and frigola. It's frigola. Which is like a, it's like a pasta, but it acts more like a grain. Wow. It's like a Sicilian pasta. And then here in this teapot is the lamb broth. So wow. shall I show you? Just so take pretty it. as We're well. very big fans of sort of pouring gravy or the sauce or the little, broth. You're yeah. so fancy. Oh. So this is how you guys eat every day. Absolutely. <laughs> every single day. But are you both in Wimbledon then? Do Because that's where you grew up. And then have you both yeah. migrated yeah. back as it yeah. were? Yeah. Pretty much. I'm on the edges. I've tried really hard to get away from Wimbledon in my like really hard <laughs> it just never worked you back suck me out and our grandmother back. who's 90 about to be 94 wow lives in Wimbledon we both in Wimbledon our parents are there it's my village everybody's just there. had to surrender to it Absolutely. that's you your end it. it is my <laughs> because there's nothing worse than not having your people near you do you know what? it was really embarrassing growing up like when you used to meet people like raving and stuff they'd be like so where are you from where are you from and you'd be like south and you'd be like southwest and they'd be like what Brixton and you'd be like no and then they'd be like that's not south London I'd be like it is technically were there other black families around Wimbledon when you guys were growing up there was one because I grew up in West London, which was just ridiculously diverse and multicultural and, and creative. And the all opposite. Beautifully. Yeah, so. the, op- the opposite, exactly. And I really took it for granted, but I really wanted to live somewhere like Wimbledon. Did you? Oh, yes. Oh, my God. In response to the kind of chaotic, crazy mm. beauty, I was like, I think we need more order. And I mean, in response to me being her mother. <laughs> <laughs> like, I really want a really conventional... Yes, yeah, suburban home. Which, so when they moved here, I was like, we're finally <laughs> moved oh to the... The suburbs, I'm so pleased. She used to like show me pictures of what she wanted me to really wear. Do you know what really? I mean? Really? Like weird twin sets. I'm yeah. like, that's not going to happen. Where, was though. this coming? Was this friends' parents that you. No, actually, no. I just wanted the opposite. And I was like deeply living in kind of denial of being black at all, really. And funky. I didn't want to be those things. I wanted to be like straight and blonde. And... I completely relate to that, but mm. it surprises me in West London because I. Yeah really envied growing up in Wimbledon, people who lived in West London because it seemed like it was so n- normal to be black. Yeah. Or mixed race, it was just like, it wasn't even diversity, it was just everyone lived yeah. together. Yeah. There yeah. was so much like cultural expression. So I was seeking that 
because I found women are very claustrophobic and very white, like the tyranny of kind of whiteness. So how do you both feel about bringing up your children there now? That's a great question. <laughs> it is. I'm in the more diverse end of the borough, let's say. <laughs> that is true. So I have a bit more uh, street cred with that. Um, so like the, the school my children go at is actually really di diverse. Mm. Um, so technically we're not Wimbledon, but we're just about cling on to the postcode. Okay, uh, how old are your children? Um, seven, five and two. So your dad's British, your mum's uh, Ghanaian. Mm -hmm. And I read the best story, I loved it so much, where you were talking about having um, your British aunt, so were they maybe your dad's sisters? Mm -hmm. And they came to Ghana. Oh, yeah. And you were, you were somewhat worried about them because yeah. you were thinking, That's... oh, God, they, they were How very... How are they going to cope? Yeah, travelling around. They don't know. They've never been to an African country before. You know, they, they're kind of very British. They wanted to explore. They definitely had an Africa. adventurous spirit. But I, I was a little... Because... Also because like our Hirsch family, they're kind of lefties, you know. Our grandfather was like definitely a socialist, his whole life, committed socialist his whole life. So of course, like when they came to Ghana, I knew they weren't gonna like want to go to five-star hotels. They will want to go like get public transport. To feel like they're they in wanna, Ghana. gonna want to be ground level because that's what they that's generally how they are, which is cool. Yeah. But I feel like if it's your first time in an African country, that's it's a different level. Oh definitely. Definitely. Well they might not know what to expect. But they went it they had <laughs> They did things that I, having lived in Ghana for years, would never have dreamed of doing. Like they, they took like public transport on like a seven hour journey. And they were like, yeah, it was great. There were chickens next to us and a go. We well, made done that. What on a trotro to like ax him? Yeah. No. What's a trot trot? A trot trot is like a trot -trot. Air, like minibus. It's like they don't have like they, they don't really have state organised public transport. So mm. just these entrepreneurs will have these minivans. Oh, okay. It's like those. Um, it's like in Kenya. The, the, um, in Kenya, the, what they call them? Um, um, yeah. Like every African country has some version of yeah. this. Like, and you know, they may they may or may not have brakes. Mm -hmm. They may or may not have doors. You know, like you kind of roll the dice. It's real. It's real. It yeah. really is. Yeah, we 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 spent a summer in Ghana together. In like 2006, we both had jobs in Ghana and we lived together and we commuted like with those trotros to work. hilarious. That was a whole experience. Oh my God, that's such a laugh. It was, it was hilarious. hilarious. And we were there with our grandmother who wouldn't let us out after about 6 p.m. Anyway, our, our aunties were, were, went, were hardcore and they had the time of their lives. And I think the reason I was writing about it was because they said, because they were like around, I guess in their early 50s then, oh maybe mid 50s. God. And they were saying like, they feel so invisible in Britain. Mm. Right. And they didn't even realize how invisible they feel until they went to Ghana, whereas 50 something year old white women on a trotro, you are not invisible. No, no. But yeah, well, quite. But it's but it's also, it, uh, the more I was reading, it was sort of opened me up to that kind of the, the complete difference in approach to aging, which is a celebration and something to be proud of mm -hmm. to age in Africa. But to in Britain, it's something to be ashamed of, something to halt, something to stop as women. Black women, no, it doesn't matter. Just, I, I think as women, I think more than men, let's be honest. I think everybody feels it, but I think women feel it most. You know, like men are called things like Silver Fox. Yeah. And women are called things <laughs> like, she's looking at, yeah, 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 like cat lady. Lots of men are considered more attractive as they get older. As they get older and women, it's... It creates this like self-loathing. Like everyone's going to get older. It's the most inevitable thing. Right, if you're lucky. lucky. You've entered your 40s. Are you still in your 30s? Yeah, still in my 30s. Right, so I'm 39 and I'm 40 this year. Oh, and it's been how like... How do you feel? Fucking terrified. Oh, you're terrified? Yeah. Mm. Are you really? I feel like, should I be really honest? I feel like uh, the, on April 26th, the day after my birthday, all of my desirability, my 
What's the right visibility. word? Visibility. Yeah, my desirability and my visibility will go, and everything I have to say will become obsolete. Do you? Re- that's your fear, or that's what you? That's my fear. Like, but it's so it's so illogical because it's not like I feel like it might happen this year or next year. It's like on April twenty sixth. Yeah, but I would actually say that is uh, this. This probably doesn't sound comforting, but it hopefully will be. That is a rational fear, not because that's going to happen. Like it's not true, but because like you've been brainwashed from birth by a society that tells you that. Mm. It constantly sells us images of younger women as attractive, that kind of like disappears older women and then now sells us multiple ways we can make ourselves artificially look younger and presents that as the ideal. I'm I'm living in LA at the moment and it's next level. But but is it next level? Because I'm freaked out by surgery in this country right now. I feel like it is worse. And it's got worse because now everyone's on a Zempic in LA. Oh yeah. And so it's this weight loss drug that's like changed. It's meant to be for diabetes. diabetes. But there's a few of them that now like everybody's on them. Like everybody's become extremely thin. And so the first place you lose fat is in your face, right? So now everyone's looking old so now the fillers and the botox oh have gone God. to like another level to compensate for all the ozempic oh so I, I went to this party's premiere in la and i was like everybody is stick thin and their face is like pumped but it was just oh it was like a dystopian it does make you feel like you're in a crazy it really mad did. world i did i was like, like this circus. is not normal and i think like i understand why people do that because especially in, an, in a city where like so much of your career Success is dependent on yeah. looking attractive or being seen as attractive. It's like your currency and useful, so, which, which is equated yeah. To so use. it's kind of it makes sense. I get it. I'm not trying to judge people, but I think yeah. I always criticizing the root cause of why people feel yeah. pressured yes. to do things. It's yes. not necessarily a choice. Yeah. It's like your financial viability depends on doing it. And mm-hmm. so, like for you feeling that way about turning forty, I get it because. It's scary because you've been told that like you're beautiful and desirable and interesting and precious because you're young. Well, sometimes. And then, oh yes, when and, I was young. And then when you're older, you're none of those things. Yes, and I think, I wanted to ask him actually before I continue, what do you do? Are you in academia? Um, so I'm a child psychologist. Okay. And I was gonna say when you said that actually, to what extent do you think feeling like that's so linked to the industry you're in? Because in my field, I actually find it really helpful to be getting older because I have more credibility. I've seen right. as more experience. Interesting. I've had situations where a head teacher threw me out of a staff room of a school I was working in, thinking I was one of the excluded kids from the school. <laughs> when I'd been Sorry, a commissioned psychologist for that school for like six years, it was a pupil referral unit. And what? because I looked young, I don't have the credibility. So actually for me, work-wise, it's quite helpful that I'm aging and I've now got children and blah, 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 yeah. because it adds credibility to what I, do but I get in the industry you're all in yeah no but completely you know what? Different. I, I feel different the pressures. same way in some ways because I feel the older I've got the more credibility I've got because mm. I'm more confident yeah and I feel more like I have the right to be in the room at the table run the table it's my yeah. table do you know what I mean it's all of that yeah. stuff and I, that, that has come with age I certainly didn't feel yeah. this way 30 years ago and my mum's career actually went to this stratospheric place in her 50s mm. for me it's like look at the lesson but it's just as you said it's so ingrained that it's like actually you've got to kind of cut an old pattern in your own thoughts because wouldn't it be funny if our 40s and 50s and 60s were the most powerful time in our lives oh, very convenient very convenient to tell us that this is where it ends when actually this is probably they the are the most powerful times in your life I'm telling you it's all to come people I, and so I think because you've been like conditioned with this idea I think you need a, like a strategy for coping with those feelings. Yeah. And so my strategy was writing this book 
and leaning into cultures where you get celebrated for aging, which mm-hmm. are basically all cultures except Northern and Western Europe, <laughs> well, basically. Yes, yes. And so like in our Ghanaian heritage, you're basically a nobody until you've hit like middle age, what we would call middle age. And you would like a proper VIP, the older you get, you know, you are the center of attention. People congregate around you, you are held up and, and you're, you're, judged not, you're judged on your contribution to your community, your, what you've survived, the wisdom, you're like a repository of your culture's stories and experience. Wow. Like you're really, and I've, you know, you kind of grow up with that, even if you can't articulate it. And I suddenly realized like, if I have a choice, I could embrace these Western ideas that make me feel bad about myself. Or I can embrace these like African ideas that make me feel good about myself. It's a bit of a no brainer, like I'm yeah. choosing, yeah. but you need, you have to be very deliberate about it because you're still living in a society that is kind of feeding you. Yeah, so do, do you think, I think it's a daily choice. Yeah, I agree. Like each day, hourly. You wake up and your mind's <laughs> going, which way you Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Your book, Decolonizing My Body, mm. I, I really wanted to talk about that. I really wanted to talk about the process of what was your intent with writing it and what did you mean for yourself by decolonizing your so body? So when I started thinking about this book, I was your exact age, about to turn 40, mm. feeling exactly like you, like it was such a big deal, which in hindsight, nothing changed, obviously, overnight. <laughs> but like we've all been programmed to think it's... A re- and I think, you know, also building on what you said, it was more than just like... I'm going to look less attractive and be less desirable. It's almost like my identity. Like my identity was as like a young person. Yes. Yeah. I was like that, that young woman. I was doing all these things. I just felt really, I kind of like embraced that. And suddenly it's like, I'm not young anymore. But that's it. I was and like, I oh, don't know shit. who I am then. Mm. It's the and you shift. enjoy that I'm a young person because everyone rewards you for that. You, yeah. So yeah. it was really painful to realize like I'm not 
that person anymore because mm-hmm. I, I really in theory believe in self-love and wellness and, and also not buying into societal ideas like creating my own ideology but in practice I was like how am I going to do that because so, they're separate things right it's like what your head understands and what your heart exactly. feels are two different things it's all good things, in theory but yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like what you mean me and yeah. a lot of women I knew were starting to and I, like I think being on in TV and the media as well is really hard a lot of women I knew started to like get little fillers and nips and tucks and stuff. And again, no judgment, some look amazing. But I was like, I felt like if I wasn't gonna go down that route, I was gonna need a reason not to, because yep. otherwise it just happens. And I just was thinking about, like I was saying, my, my Ghanaian heritage, and I was thinking in my ancestral culture, women used to mark their bodies, um, like scarification, tattooing. It was one of the ways you celebrated aging and the status and the wisdom oh, you developed. Connected to aging? Yeah, so there were all these tattoos that marked like the rites of passage, the stages of life. Mm. And I was kind of brought up to think that was kind of backward, like, you know, something we right. left behind when we became civilized and Christian. So called, yeah. Right. And I realized that's a really, you know, I do a lot of work on like, colonization and racism. And I was like, how have I still got these basic racist ideas ideas about my own culture? And then I thought, I think it's totally normal to like get operated on to look young, Mm. but to have a very natural ancestral ritual of marking my body to feel good about who I actually am. And where my life is actually. And where my life actually is, I think that's, backward like this is crazy so that's why I got my hand tattooed I was like this is what I'm gonna choose were you there when she did it no it's so beautiful no I went on my own it looks like lace we were all like but it's Hannah right (laughs) (laughs) they were all I was like so I'm going to get this tattoo blah 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 and then they also and they're like but it comes off right they're like six weeks eight weeks how long are we talking (laughs) let me see let me see it oh my goodness it's beautiful so the artist who did it who's called Emmy Linholm she's amazing you can find her on Instagram Instagram. Um, her, her Insta is Emmy underscore La underscore Grizzly. Her, her whole specialism is ancestral indigenous tattoo cultures for women and like restoring them. And mm. she personally, she's Mauritian Chinese heritage, found it very healing in her own life when yeah. she started doing these like ritual tattoos. And so now she does it for other women and it's kind of taken off. Wow. And I think so many of us are on that journey of just trying to work out like our identity, our connection to ancestry, navigating aging, our bodies as women. It's interesting because one of the other things is that I don't have children and mm. I do want to have children. So I'm sort of obsessively, obsessively reading these wonderful stories of like Chloe Savigny meeting her husband at 45 <laughs> and having a baby at 46. I was like, okay. Because actually the way my life has gone, it makes a lot of sense for me to become a mother later because mm. my life has been about my career most mm. since 15. And I think that's also why yeah. I'm scared of aging because everyone's like, you're doing this, you're on telly, you're, you're good at it and you're only 15. And I sort of kept that till, you're only 30, you're only 32. You're so young. Yeah, you're, you're so doing. young yeah, for yeah, what yeah. you're doing. I remember even by the time I was 21, people weren't as impressed and I was like, <laughs> okay, I'm gonna have to start saying I'm 19. Like, I need your to case still is be really wow, extreme because you were is. so young when you yeah. became famous yeah. and successful in your career. Yeah, so it's a real like attachment to that glory and validation. Um, but but you two both have kids. So what I say to all my friends with kids, which is about an 85% now, it's funny how you can even be a mother of children and still be like, oh God, I can't believe I have to turn 40. It's like, but surely you feel so grown being a mum. I'm going to defer to Amma because she's the actual grown-up in this <laughs> yeah, situation. And I'm also kind of asking Amma. <laughs> she's an actual grown-up yeah. with like an actual family, yeah. three children, lovely right. home, right. schedules, how old, everything How planned. old are you, Amma? <laughs> Um, I'm 38. 38 so, and three kids under 10. Yeah, so I had my first, I had them at 30, 32, 35. And I think maybe that is why I'm not so worried about aging because right. 
having children was a big thing for me. But because I've done that, I feel fine about aging because I don't feel... I kind of have that big thing I've accomplished that I also wanted to. Also because what you've been through is so crazy that yeah, like, what else honest, is going to fade you? Life is just so mad <laughs> really? at the moment. Well, having really? three boys. Oh, just three boys who oh, right. are um, bouncing off the walls. We yeah, because just... you don't just have a baby. Yeah, you're no. raising well, two yeah, children. that was what, what the shock was. We grew up the two of us girls as well. Yeah, we didn't it's grow up a shock boys. every day for me. The so just the reality of boys is like completely totally new. Totally like willies. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always like my, or texting my sister like, hey, I'm, like, I'm in the park again. I'm messy and I'm in gold this time. And it's raining. <laughs> and I'm, like, I'm in the park and this time I'm in gold. Oh my and oh, my eyes. sister's always like, oh, we have pajama days until midday on a weekend. And I'm just like, I've already done swimming. Uh, boys, don't, they don't do that? Right. Lying around, that. let's watch Little Women. In the park interesting, Mum. Isn't that interesting? Because there weren't really boys just loads yeah, of us well, we were the same it's constantly fascinating I feel a bit guilty like me and my daughter <laughs> like when we go on holiday we basically lie until 12 <laughs> have like breakfast in bed get a manicure I go and have like a, a, a cocktail she has a mocktail yeah get yeah, a manicure yeah, it's uh, different no it's great I was isn't that it's interesting though fun. because you think about societal norms and where does that come from like you know, you don't think, believe, you know, I don't believe that men and women or boys and girls have ascribed behavior at birth. It's like you do what you do and your personality and your character drives that. But then when you talk about that, I'm just like, like oh, my God, that I, I don't think so until I had sons. I found my views about gender being a construct severely tested. <laughs> severely. <laughs> like, can everyone stop being quite so stereotypical? My daughter, from she would sit around. Yeah. Like she would first, sit coloring all day. The first toy I ever got my daughter you was like, a tool bench. Right. <laughs> She was not interested in the tool bench. <laughs> she wanted dolls, coloring, <laughs> puzzles. She'd just sit there all day, just doing these little things. Amma's boys, who are the best little boys ever, they are so gorgeous. But you sit, they would be sprinting. Oh yeah. Up, but be... they just sprint ever, they don't walk, they sprint, energy. they bite, and they I, kick things, yeah. they climb things. Yeah. They throw things. It's I tried to do the whole non-gendered toys. Like we have a little toy buggy and a little brown baby, which they have all loved. And my two-year-old currently, is obsessed with. He's no. called handspray. What the baby? The baby. Handspray. Handspray. <laughs> Lockdown children. Just bear with it. Um, <laughs> not not the child. The toy. No, sorry. Yeah, my child's not called handspray. The doll. Um, <laughs> my little one comes zooming down the road. But you know how with the, we, kind of- with the doll, and we thought it'd be a nice nurturing non-gender toy for them to have. Literally, it's like Formula One. They like drive up the walls. They lob yes. handspray across. The, they play basketball with handspray, <laughs> lobbing him. <laughs> Oh, Mind you, I was quite violent with my dolls. I used to take their heads off. Emma, you tried. I tried. Emma, you, you I tried my best tried. psychological interventions. I mean, you're a child psychologist. I know. Well. So, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Well, but, so both this is being very challenged by, not challenged, but like maybe idea, ideas about motherhood and children. I thought it was yeah. all conditioning. Mm, yeah. And like our children were all born with specific personalities intact, mm. I would say. Mine definitely have a strong masculine energy, I'd say. <laughs> People say by seven, you are you, you know? Uh, well, I think it's quite interesting watching the ego come in because my my cousin Phoebe has two kids, a boy and a girl. And at about five, I was like, why are they being such little assholes? And she was like, because their ego is become, becoming apparent. And I thought, oh my God, the development of an ego. How do we stop it? How do we stop it right now? Nikita takes it really personally. I'm like, Nikita, she's seven. <laughs> You can't just she's just seven why is she it's like yeah. seven that's what's seven. no it's just it's i just feel like people are kind of who they are very young 
I know I was. Yeah, yeah, you were. You were. You were very similar to when you were five to how you are now. She used to kind of come in the room and kind of go, "Everybody, stop <laughs> and look at me." No, what, no, not yeah. as simple as that. More nuanced, surely. Not really. Okay. Like you know, everybody stop looking at me and James Brown dancing to James yeah. Brown. You had a real academic life, Afwa. Um, I didn't even know you also uh, trained as a barrister. Mm. Wow. That's what I spent my 20s doing. Mm. I, spe- I actually, after everything we said about aging, I would not go back. That age To you. being in my 20s. No, no, not 20s. If you paid me. I found my it's 20s really stressful. I, was, I w- was really purposeful. Like I had a really strong kind of sense of mission. I, I wanted to become this barrister. I wanted to practice human rights law. I really cared about it. I was really devoted to it. I worked really hard. But I, when I think about my 20s, I basically spent it at a desk. The whole thing, like, it was no really, wildness, really hard. No parties. I, the thing is, I'd kind of got that out of my system in my teens. <laughs> <laughs> she peaked early with that. So. I, peaked, yeah. I peaked early. Um, so it was fine. But, and it's one of those things, I'm actually proud of what I did because I, I really wanted to be a human rights barrister. I got into the chambers that I really wanted to be at. Uh, it's called Doughty Street. It's Amal Clooney's chambers, like very big international human rights cases. How do you, how do you get into the So I, I didn't do law at university, so I had to convert to law, which is a year. Then I had to do bar school, which is another year. Then you have to do pupillage, which is like, like an apprenticeship in chambers. Yeah. And those are really difficult to get. Um, and I did that at Doughty Street. And then I got there and I called to bar and qualified. And then I looked around called and I realized, I realized mm-hmm. I've, I've been so focused on this vision and now I'm here in my, like, the dream place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not me. Oh, no. But, but, okay, but what does that feel like after all that work? Well, I'm really proud now of my younger self having the courage and self-knowledge to walk away because mm. you get so much status and societal approval. You know, like, our mum was so proud. That yes. was her dream. And I feel like I was honest enough with myself to be able to say I will forego all of that approval. I didn't even have a plan B at the time. I was like, I I know this isn't who I am. And I also know I can't really work out what I'm meant to do while I'm here because it's taking up all my headspace. So I think it was quite brave of me to just leave. Other people in my life didn't necessarily oh, share that. Say, how did you, how, how was mum? I could see she wasn't herself. Like you were. I, I remember kind of meeting you for, I think it was um, on a birthday, and there was that. Um, we went to a Donnell Jones and Avant concert in Brixton. Oh remember? my God, what? And it was amazing. We bumped into Avant in the toilets who was chatting us up. <laughs> and then after the concert, it was literally amazing. You had to go back to work and it was things like that. And yeah. like working literally constantly and you were yeah. always getting ill. And yeah. so I was I was quite surprised and I like a, a structure and a plan. So it was yeah. a bit unsettling. But it was hard for me to accept that this thing I'd basically sacrificed like all these years doing wasn't what I wanted. But... I'm so grateful in hindsight because it opened the path for all the things I really exactly now realise I was meant Those to do. Those moments are really important, yeah. I think, in your life when your some your inner voice is going stop, turn around, turn left, turn right. You know, because I think it's quite easy to ignore that voice, but it makes me feel a bit like nauseated. Mm-hmm. What hearing that if voice? I, no, if I ignore that voice. Yeah, but, but Oprah says it's a whisper, it's a whisper, it's a whisper, and until you hear it, uh, I'm sorry, if you don't hear it, then you it's a punch in the face. Then, so you, and then if you don't listen, with, something suddenly massive. something happens. And you're like, what am I doing yeah. here? So it's good. You heard the whisper. Mikita has two so true. goddesses. One is Oprah. The other is Barbara Streisand. <laughs> Just then, yeah. Just so they Barbara. may come up quite a lot. <laughs> We should, just, we should start doing an Oprah Barbara warning. <laughs> Barbara Streisand quote coming up. But I really, I really do know what you mean by it. It's like, mm. 
it's fucking terrifying to leave something and to just look for certain and especially when you've been focused on and that's your plan and then you realise that if you walk away from that you're going to have to start all over again with working out what you see especially it took so long to get there as well it's not like it was a year working and then you get it's like six years or something and, but of course now I realise like it, it led to all the next things yes so it, it was part of my path so I don't regret it at all but, but it's also a very you thing to do because you always rebel you always go against the grain <laughs> really? you always I'm challenge the it, parents not so not for the sake not for the sake of rebellion though no. like but when it, I do something, it's, if I rebel, it's, it's for a reason. It's for a reason. Yeah. Tell me about these partying days in your teens. Oh God, I'll like, tell you about. Yeah, yeah, I whatever. think I'll just take it straight to Emma. What is this in Wimbledon, or are you yeah. taking it to Brixton? Um, Central okay. West End. She, oh. she took it to the West End. In fairness, <laughs> there was a productive point. So I started writing for The Voice when I was fourteen. Oh wow, fourteen! I know. I did just like one day of take your daughters to work day. My cousin was already a journalist there. She's ten years older, and I literally was like, I found my calling. I loved it, and I. There were two things about it I loved. I loved, I realized I loved journalism. Like I was really curious. I loved to write. I loved to meet people. But on a deeper level, I was growing up in Wimbledon and then I went into The Voice and it was like, everyone was black. Right. Not only was everyone black, but this was like an organization they'd founded, they ran. The editor, the photographer, the receptionist, everyone was black. And it was such a nurturing environment for me. Mm. They were like, how can we build you? It was so, like, I've, I still wow. have so much love for, for everybody I work with there. And, and you know, I realized actually a lot of the black journalists who now you see on the biggest news platforms started there. Started at The Voice. Because we couldn't get into the mainstream. No one would hire you, even if you were straight out of Oxbridge at that point. But The Voice would give you a job. And then once you'd built your reporting or writing track record, then you could start getting into more mainstream titles. But The Voice was such an important like incubator of black talent. Mm. And for me, it was really life-changing. So for anyone that doesn't know, The Voice was a black run. Oh yes, The Voice is still with us. It's the oldest black newspaper in Britain. Ah. It's still like an important voice for the black community. Like so many. It's still based in Brixton. That's yeah. amazing. And it was really life changing for me. And I did start out writing about issues facing young black people. But then there was this one seminal moment that I'll never forget where basically I was in the newsroom. I used to go after school. And this was 1997. Mm. And someone was like, this R&B singer from America called Usher's here. Nobody can be bothered to go. I was like, oh. <laughs> I've got a picture of Usher, yeah. me 16, Usher 18, oh him God, kissing me. I, I need that. to take that picture out. Wait a minute. <laughs> Wasn't it when you make me want it? You make me want it had just come out. And and I I interviewed him at the Ritz in Brixton, then we hung out, and then I was like, I found my calling. I got you into journalism. This is me, RB hip hop. So and then I started getting like VIP to all the parties. Oh my god. And and you probably were still like 1920. No, yeah. Oh my god. So you two, you're probably at the same parties. Well, I was just thinking, was I did I do that promo Usher tour? But I was I'm older than you. you. Yeah, a little bit older. I think so you, you, I would have just I, I remember yeah. when I started seeing you on TV because there, there hadn't really been like black girls, no, no. women of color on TV in that space. It was space. June. It was June. I mean, we're talking about June Sarpong. Amma was obsessed with you. Oh, oh Amma! Yeah, oh, yeah. I used to watch the T4 day. <laughs> so nice. No, that's really nice because it was a, it is a connector and it was weird getting well known, but when Young black girls would go, I really love you. Wow, it's amazing. See, I was like 17. I was like, God, I guess this, I guess that is quite a thing. I never had anyone. So it is, it's a privilege to have that in my history for sure. I want to 
wanted to ask about your career in TV, Afwa. How did you suddenly, because Sky News is where you first started no, being on no. screen. I, what the Guardian was advertising for a legal correspondent. Um. And I was like, always been a Guardian reader. Our grandfather read the Guardian every day of his life with that kind of family. And I was like, that's kind of my dream job. But it said they wanted someone with 15 years newsroom experience, like a senior role. I was so embarrassed that I was applying, I didn't tell anyone. So I was like, this is literally ludicrous. And I thought it was insane. But I went in for the interview and then just being in the Guardian newsroom, I was like, oh yeah, this is, these are my people. Mm -hmm. So then I was like, I'm gonna, I am gonna get this job. I just started writing stories and sending them in. I was like mining all my friends at the bar for stories, (laughs) things that hadn't been imported and just like bombarding them with all these stories until they gave me a job. Give me the juice. That's quite good. That's a good like scat, like like, just scatter vomit. You know that thing they say that like men will apply for a job if they meet like five percent of the criteria right. and women only if they meet 95 percent. i was definitely moving like a dude i was like i have none of the requirements but i'm a lawyer like i know how the but absolutely. Like, you have the requirements you're a lawyer had, your personal yeah. i had the requirements i thought they needed yeah. not the ones they and you clearly were they. right <laughs> i was right it was a great <laughs> job for me so that's how i became a journalist from there i became the west africa correspondent so when my daughter was born me and her and um, my partner her dad moved to ghana and we, again, I we created, thought she was crazy oh my god so you went back to ghana yeah, then started on the guardian first ever West Africa Bureau. Yeah, it kind of went a bit south when I ended up covering a lot of wars, which wasn't what I planned. Right. Because my whole thing was, it was so personal. My whole life, Africa's been covered so badly by the British media and it's affected me, but it's made me embarrassed right. of my own African heritage. Right. You know, in the 80s, it was like embarrassing to be African. Of course, everyone pretended to be Jamaican. I used to lie and say I was Jamaican and my mum my mum overheard me doing that and that was the first time she took us to Ghana wow. she's like okay we have a problem here not that there's anything wrong with being Jamaican obviously no, but, but it's, it's like just not, but just denying yourself it was cool to be point, Jamaican in the 80s yeah. and it was embarrassing to be African and that is 100% a reflection on the racism in the British media yeah. and so when I had the opportunity to become West Africa correspondent I was like it was very restorative I was like this is my chance to do what I needed growing up to actually read nuanced stories about African culture and economic growth and innovation. So I pitched it to The Guardian, like I'm gonna cover West Africa in a way that's never been done before. And they loved it and they sent me there and I got the job. And then I got there and like a major war broke out three weeks later in which British and French and American troops were committed. And you know how the media works, like that was the only story in town. I was still trying to pitch my stories about food and tech. And And they're like, yeah, you wanna go back to the front please? (laughs) Right. So, and I, I was still breastfeeding, like it was not the plan at all. So that was really hard, it stretched me professionally. And I still think I covered the war in like a more nuanced way than would have been done because it, wars in Africa have always been presented as like Africans just love killing each other. It's always because of how foreign powers are manipulating the Yeah, African and they're, they're all out of control and they just, you And know. they all have their roots in colonialism and like the ways in which the continent's being exploited by different groups. So I, at least I was able to do that differently. And I still did get to do my stories about food and tech, but but it was hard, um, you know, like wearing a flak jacket and, and, a, and a helmet when I was like, Every time I interviewed like a refugee with a baby, my boobs would start Stop like leaking, leaking oh my underneath God. my flak jacket. It was so hard. Wow, what um, a place to be at that time in your life. It was hard. But then when you see something like the BBC series, Africa Rising, I didn't get to watch it when it came out. God, I really wanted to, and we just watched it. So brilliant, so beautifully made. Who directed it? Thank it? You. Photography, the cinematography. Yeah, stunning. stunning. Yeah. Thank you. We had a different director for every episode. They're oh, you all did? amazing directors, yeah. And I particularly loved Nigeria. Thank wow. you. Yeah. Nigeria's incredible. That and director was Jason Ferguson. He's amazing. He's incredible. Ferguson. Yeah. Jason. Yeah. Go on, and Jason. We, we really responded to the depth of field in it, like the colour, but the personalities, like that brilliant chef 
She called Oyehi. What's oh, her name? Oh yeah, Oyehi. Chef Oyehi in Nigeria. I was like, I have to go. Oh my god. <laughs> I have to say, Nigeria was so fun to film. I've always loved Nigeria. I find it so like spiritually enriching to be in Nigeria. I was like, Ghanaian, I'll get cancelled for saying this, but it is, <laughs> it is like a really special place. I was like, don't say it. There is a level of kind of chaos, but it's so. It was really interesting in Nigeria actually because um our for each episode we we try and have like a, a central question, like a thesis. And in Nigeria, our question was, what is Nigeria's secret sauce? Because whatever, wherever you're from, like no one can deny that Nigerians are hugely overrepresented in art, yep. in yes. music, in science, like whatever Nigerians do, they seem to like They're blow out the top. water. Yep. So in Nigeria, we were like, what is it about this country? Like why do Nigerians excel in, in every field they go into? And every single person we interviewed without exception said, because life in Nigeria is so hard, mm. it takes so much resilience and vision and dedication to get through a day wow. that if you apply those same qualities to your art, you're gonna right. you're gonna be the best. Because you're gonna be the best. Got that kind of drive. And, and it, I, I just thought that was real because with Africa Rising, in a way, this was my chance to do what I didn't fully get to do as the West Africa correspondent for the Guardian. Right, this is what I was gonna say. It's like then you got yeah. your time. It was really like to sit in the joy and the genius of African cultures and show it visually. Like it was such a such an amazing thing to be able to do. But I want to ask, because I absolutely loved you guys' series on the Caribbean. Oh, thank I you. I loved it. <laughs> and it actually was part of the inspiration for Africa Rising because I felt like you guys gave yourselves permission to just celebrate while also being honest about some of the things that were hard and the struggles, but it was just so joyful and beautiful. And I, I don't think I'd ever seen anything like that where you were really honest about your personal connection, but you were really curious about the contemporary situation and the history. It was just gorgeous. And I, I, was, I just found it so lovely and it's, interesting. I'm and so I learned pleased. a lot about you both. I'm so pleased. Pleased. <laughs> yes. It's important, I think, to tell stories from all over the world from the inside out rather than from the outside in, because they're all often told through the view of the outsider going, look what these people do, exactly. aren't they interesting? Isn't it fascinating? Look what they, look what they... So to tell, to allow Caribbean voices yeah. to have our own voice yeah. in, the, in those films was hugely important to us. It was like we wanted people to tell us their own stories. And I don't think people voices. realize how difficult it is to make that kind of content for British right. TV. You uh, have to be willing- The process. To put yourself on the line. It's, you, it's like a hill you have to die on. Like yeah. my series, I had to fight every stage yeah. for it to not start regressing to those yeah. colonial like what about corruption let's show you know and it's like Afwa thank you for saying that because that process for us with the Caribbean as well very difficult yeah. very very much a fight you couldn't and see it but I just know because I know yeah. what it's like to make I just knew you would have had to fight to protect the integrity of what you made every single little part and it's so unfair that you have to pay a personal price just to be able to make a program that is really successful and people want to watch right. but do you, do you feel because I, I we were talking about this earlier that because of that, because it's so hard, we almost get set, not, not just as people of colour or women of colour, but I think in any marginalised group, even, you know, even if it's just women, because it's tough to tell the stories, it's tough to get it made, you end up feeling almost um, in competition with each other. Yeah. You know, is there space for all of us? I, I think in a way, like, you know, I think about my career. I mean, my cousin who I mentioned, she now works at the FT. She gave me my first break by taking me to The Voice. Mm -hmm. June Sarpong, I used to do a show on Sky News with her. She was so kind she and supportive so generous, yeah. and nurturing of me. Yes, me too. And just gave me so many breaks. And so, you know, like black women have stepped up. Gillian Joseph at Sky News helped me get my first job at Sky. Everything I've done, there's been a black woman inside rooting for me. Mm -hmm. And I really carry that and I try and pay it forward. I 
tried to be that black woman for younger yes. women, for anyone coming through, but especially younger women, because I remember the difference it made to me. So I think that, you know, those individual choices of like being about it, supporting us, believing in us, it does make a difference. So I heard this really brilliant interview with Cor Jefferson, the guy who directed He's American brilliant. Fiction. To get that film made was so hard, as you can possibly imagine. I know, because I was working with him when he was right. trying to get it made. And he said, which I found really interesting, that he kept meeting people or having meetings with people who were, like, really supportive of the creative. Like, this is amazing, this is incredible. And then the next breath would be, I wish I worked for a company that could make this film. Oh, my God, welcome and to my life. And then it was black women <laughs> in the upper echelons yeah. who finally went, he took it, and, you know, there were different women who finally went on oh, no, and supported the project and pushed it over the line. Diversity is not just a word. It's like we need to be everywhere. You need to be right through every space. We need to be everywhere so that things can happen. I think as well, people don't realise, like in America, there is a black woman at the top of almost every major network or broadcaster. Like we don't have that here. Wow, God, is that? But compared to the UK... You can go into a space and meet a black woman who is the gatekeeper, who is interested in you, who's willing to like take a risk. As the industry sees it as a risk, she yeah, doesn't necessarily see it as a risk. And here, if you look at who is the gatekeeper at all the biggest streamers, there are a few exceptions, um, like Anne Mensa at Netflix, who's Ghanaian Heritage, shout out to that, she's cool. Um, <laughs> she but you know, like, there's, there's not, there, it's, there's still few. So, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming. It's so nice to it's meet so you. So lovely to meet you. I, I, I didn't yeah. know that you had a sister. I love that you grew up together because I have a cousin and we're both same age and it's just that kind of bond and that link and I can just feel that from you too. I really love lovely. my sister. She's, she's, and she's like, <laughs> we're quite different. Very you know, different. <laughs> yes. Well, just everything. But we're choices. really similar. Like when, when we're really different, but we're, I, we're we but live you're really connected close. and linked. We, we love each other's children. Mm. We're like always there for each other. Totally. You, you can feel that. You yeah. can feel that. Yeah. My God, you drank that fast. Oh, it was so good. <laughs> the cocktail went down the Heralding in the spring. Cheers, everybody. Couldn't think of two better chicks to do it with. I know, what a joy. It's, so it's really yummy, that. Oh. <laughs> I'm so proud of my drink today. pair what a pair of incredibly dynamic brilliant kind warm excellent women they're kind of what you hope happens yes when children grow up as as Afwa said with privilege you hope that what happens then is that they become the best version of themselves and that's exactly what happened with them often it goes the other way <laughs> just brilliant people to be around just really fascinating mm. and just and lovely energy like they came in and I just felt ah yeah at ease I like that sister energy but because Afwa does come across as sort of an academic to me because yeah. I'm because I'm so not we're both mixed race we're both on TV and we've done things that are similar in our work life I, only the TV stuff can I just can I just, just hasten, like to, just like hasten to add you haven't really done any uh, West African <laughs> war coverage lately and I, I didn't really get through that ba bachelor's degree but right. it's, it's interesting all these different ways to have 
a career like mm. uh, and to be brave and to give things up and, and pivot and look in another direction and see what it gives you a lesson in listening to the whisper listen to the whisper listen to the voice inside you that is trying to tell you you're doing the wrong thing or trying to tell you what to do next it's not a fluke it's your spirit mm. trying to communicate with you it's the universe talking to you listen listen but also i get that voice when i'm doing the right thing yeah it's like, it's like, yes, correct. Why is it tingling in the... Yes. St- <laughs> I think I'm on the right path. So, yeah, it was beautiful to see all the, the myriad things that Afa was done and the, that she continues to do and still intends to do. Like, you know, she's yeah. in LA being a professor of journalism at USC. And making scripted uh, television. Yes, and has her own film and TV company. Amazing. And... Just unstoppable, but just feel, as you said, she keeps moving. She it's keeps a moving. In keep to your vision, keep yeah. to your focus, keep on keeping on. 